Ladies and gentlemen, The Dana Buckler Show is made possible by all of our amazing Patreon supporters. We have a lot of big things planned in the immediate future, and this is possible because of the support this show receives. So what do you get when you become a supporter? Early access to episodes, past episodes that are no longer available on the main podcast feed, and a number of exclusive episodes. Sign up today by going to patreon.com slash howisthismovie. There is a link in this episode's show notes. Once again, we want to say thank you to all of our supporters. You are amazing. Now on with the show. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dana Buckler Show. My name is Dana, and I am pleased to be joined uh, all the way from the West Coast to writer, director, producer, Peter Winther. How are you today, sir? I am doing great. Very good today, yeah. It's beautiful and sunny in LA after a lot, a lot of rain. So sure, sure, excellent, excellent. Yeah. Well, Peter, there's there's a lot I want to talk to you about. Uh, there's, I mean, you've had quite the uh, the fascinating career, and I'm I'm anxious to to talk about it. But first things first. I mean, can you t- tell the listeners just a little bit about what you're working on right now? Sure. Yeah, I'm in uh, I'm in post production on a film called Aftermath that stars Sean Ashmore and Ashley Green. And um, it's a psychological thriller uh, basically about a couple that love each other, and they're, but they're trying to overcome an infidelity in a relationship. So they have to learn how to trust each other again. And so all the thrills and chills that surround them are just a metaphor for all those things that conspire against any relationship, really. Uh, and, and, get us to a point where at some point in time, if you love someone, you have to just believe them, even when all the evidence is to the contrary. So so that's, uh, we shot it here in Los Angeles, uh, which is rare. You rarely get to shoot in LA because you're always chasing tax credits. But we were able to shoot it with, uh, like the crew did Captain Marvel, because uh, my uh, brother produced that film. So we tapped into those people. And it's great because everyone can go home at night. So it's a, it's a movie for a smaller budget, but we like to say like we can make the movie look and drive like a Porsche, even if it's on a smart car budget. So it's one of the things we can bring to the table because, because of uh, the larger movies that we've done as well. So Sure, sure. Now, how did you get involved yeah. with this project? You know what? It was, it was a project uh, that I wrote it together with uh, the writer. Uh, she's a young writer, Dakota Gorman. We we're both true crime fanatics. Uh, so we listen to a lot of podcasts actually, and, uh, in the true crime world and, and read books and everything. And there was, this was just a story. It's based off a true story. Uh, and then we, that happened in the 1920s. And so we just kind of updated that story and used it as our jumping off point, uh, to create the story. But I've wanted uh, to tell a story about trust in a relationship, uh, because I've, uh, been, me and some of my other friends have been experiencing that. Not just in romantic relationships, but in, uh, in friendships and business relationships. And it just, it seemed to be a theme that kept popping up. And so that's just what you do as a storyteller is something that's on your mind and uh, a theme that you want to explore and then try to put it into a entertaining, uh, you know, fashion. Uh, and so this true crime story that we listened to kind of all the chips just kind of fell together perfectly so that we were able to tell it, you know, you mentioned that you're in post-production on the movie right now. Um, yeah. you, you got any type of timetable when we can look forward to actually yeah. getting a chance to see it? Yeah. I mean, I, it's, it's a question right now, like whether it's going to be like right before the summer 
or do we want to wait until the fall when the tr- more traditional time to uh, release, you know, scary movies are more, you know, when you're you're building in and around that Halloween time frame. But uh, but otherwise, you the spring is also a good place because there's all the kind of more, uh, you know, I guess Oscar contenders and movies like that. So you can counter program uh, these kind of uh, films. It's not a horror film. It's more psychological thriller, but you know, where it's not, where it's just very entertaining and, and still says something like we're trying to pattern a little bit like get out where, you know, Jordan Peele was able to talk or even, uh, 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 parasite where it's much more of those kind of films where there's scary elements, but they're trying to talk about something more, whether it's about, uh, the hierarchy of society and parasite or in racism, like get out. And ours is about trust where you're, you're using an entertaining story to talk about something bigger. But in the spring is a good place for those time, for those movies too, you know, cause there's not many like them during that time frame. So it'll be one of the two. We're, we're just deciding upon that right now. So the movie's testing really, really well. So everyone's really excited about it. So now it's just finding it the right place to release. Now, are you pushing for a, a, a theatrical on this one? Yeah. I mean, it's again, you want it. It's, it's always, it's the big question nowadays on any movie you set, you, you sell. Cause now you're looking at like movies like the Irishman coming out in Netflix. And most people are probably watching that movie there because of the length, you know, but, uh, you just, you're looking for the best deal financially, but also the most eyeballs. The good thing for me is the investors that are behind this film are more interested in more people seeing it. Even if they end up, lo- the deal up front is less, they want more people to see it. So in that case, theatrical is better because it just gives you more windows, right? So you can start with a theatrical release. Maybe you put it out four or 500 screens and, and see if it takes. Uh, and then if it doesn't, you can still have your streaming window. Uh, but we, we have been given a, a pretty great streaming offer, which I can't say by who, but, uh, that would make everybody healthy financially. But, uh, we have to decide if that's what we want to take yet. So it's, uh, it's always a tough call, you know, it's a tough call because it's, uh, for me, like, I don't, I don't go to the movies as much as I used to, right? I used to go like two, three times a week and now it's like two, three times a month. You know, because there's so much uh, good good programming on TV. So it's just about finding the right home. But I, of course, as director, I'm always leaning towards theatrical because I always feel that's still the best experience. And if the movie's testing well, especially scary films, tend to take off in a community environment because everybody likes being scared in a bigger room than than just by themselves, you know, or with one other person. Although it works there too, but. My experience of horror films, I like watching a lot of people, you know? Sure, sure, yeah. The community experience. You know, this question just sort of popped in my mind right now when we were talking about, you know, you said you have you have a, a good streaming offer out there. We're kind of in uncharted territory right now with streaming services. You know, it's, yeah. I mean, just, I mean, just in the past uh, 10 years, five years, in your experience, because you've been in the industry long enough, like, what is going through your mind right now as far as when do you think this settles into a new normal? Or, I mean, how many more streaming services? I know I'm firing a lot of questions yet at once, but I'm just curious as yeah. a, as a producer, as a director, I mean, what are your thoughts on the introduction of, of streaming? I mean, it's, it's here to stay. Well, it's a conflicted uh, feeling because I do love the theatrical experience so much and the joy of watching an audience. Like when we 
first uh, showed the trailer of Independence Day and we showed the White House blowing up, like the physical reaction of everybody in that crowd at the Chinese theater was so incredible. Like, uh, so you miss that. So it's like you miss that uh, hearing the crowd react to anything. Now, even when you do a streaming deal, you probably do a premiere, a theatrical premiere somewhere, but you don't do the old, like we used to travel around and go to all the different theaters and watch different, you know, showings of it and just see how the crowd reacted. And there's a, there's a certain joy to that. But as a content creator, we have more places to sell to, you know? So before you had maybe, uh, if you, especially I was mostly dealing with movies you had seven places to go, you know, between Fox, Universal, Disney, you know, all this, the seven studios, that's it. If they said no, you're done. Yeah. You know? So, uh, cause you didn't really then go to the TV stations after that. And even then it's like not, there was maybe four, you know, so now there's just, uh, there's many more buyers. So, so that's good for on, on that level. It's good. As far as when it's uh, when it settles into a new normal, I don't I don't know if that will I'm not sure that will ever happen. I I do think, you know, at some point whether it's like the theaters that give a higher end experience, like the IPIC theaters, or you know these or you know these other theaters ArcLight to a certain degree, but now that's the new normal. Like that's not as special anymore the ArcLight experience. But but I think it'll be one of those things, either movie you, you feel like a star Wars film that you have to see in that theater or a big, a really popular scary movie, you know, that you want to see with a lot of people, uh, anything that you want a community experience. I think the theaters will still be in play and, uh, and streaming will, will, it just gives you more option. And the good thing is because there's more buyers, uh, people have to, the buyers have to take more risks in what they buy. So like Breaking Bad would never have been made in a traditional uh, ABC, NBC, CBS format. You know what I mean? Yeah. It had to AMC in order for them to make a mark. They had to go for much riskier material. You know, same HBO, same thing when they first started because they weren't all about they weren't about ratings or about subscriptions. So it's all about uh, it's all about that. You know what I mean? Like, but I think the theater experience will always be there, you know, uh, and it will settle into something, uh, but it won't be, I think people watching at home will be primary and going to a theater, uh, will be like, uh, a secondary experience, but still, I would still think prominent, you know, would you pretty much how it is with me now? Like I, I watch programming a lot, uh, but I'll do it at home. Mostly probably 60, 70% I'll watch at home and then 30% I'll go to a theater. Would you, know? you would you think in theory, um, based on what you just said there, that this will inevitably drive the cost of theater ticket prices up more exponentially as less people are going? I mean, do you see something like in the kind of almost like a, like a Broadway play type thing? You know, it just. Yeah, I do. I, I, I think that the only thing that would, could change that is, uh, you know, the whole, you know, thing with now the, uh, you know, the Paramount rule, like we're now, we're now theater, we're now studios can own theaters again. Like it looks like that's going to happen. So, uh, so then it, it could be so, on one hand, you're like, okay, that's cool. Cause like Disney will own the, like their own theaters and they'll probably do a really good job of that. And they, they can amortize their costs a lot more than like, like a Regal or AMC or, or Arclight. So, 
maybe they can create a, a great experience at a lesser cost. I don't know to drive more people there. I don't know. Or they'll, or they'll make it a much more select experience. Like you're saying, like Broadway musical. So, uh, we'll see, but I, I don't think that rules as, is, is, I think that rule will end up being a better thing for the theaters than a worse thing because we're already in the monopoly stage with theaters anyways with those big three. So, so maybe it ends up being a, a better thing and, and it, maybe it could create cheaper prices, to be honest. If the, it depends how they want to invest in theaters, you know. For, for those who for don't years. know the, the Paramount rule, can you talk just a little bit about that? Because that goes back, what, 60? That's like, like the 1940s when that rule went into yeah, place. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it basically was it was uh, the government uh, established on the studio business. Like the studios used to own the theaters too, so they had a monopoly. So, like the you know if Disney uh, owned uh, made the movie, then they would make sure only Disney movies would go into their theaters and wouldn't let any other ones come into the theaters. So, uh, so basically, it was it's like a kind of an anti-monopoly act where they basically outlawed the studios from also owning the theaters. You know, so. Uh, so that the theaters could choose freely who, which movies they wanted to do, and they'd be just driven by by uh, you know the law of supply and demand, and like who wanted those movies and 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 all that stuff. So that's why every year the studios bring all their films to uh, the exhibitors in Vegas and show them what they're going to do this year, and then the, the exhibitors decide which movies they want to take. So so there is that fear that you know Disney uh, or or Paramount or or uh, Universal would only have their movies in their theaters, but I think the, the I think I still think the audience will drive it. You know, like if Universal doesn't have a good movie going and nobody's going to it, they're not going to not put in Star Wars into their theater. You know, so because they'll still get then make money off it. You know, so uh, but back then I think it was certainly an appropriate rule, and and it's up in the air whether it's a it's a rule that's now dated and doesn't need to apply anymore or or we'll find out if it if it should have stayed in place or not just depends what what the studios do with it and i'm I'm not a hundred percent up to date on it you said this is something that looks like it's going to happen or is it is it it's happening it looks it, it's it i mean everybody that i know feels like it's going to happen it's been it's been presented as as a as a law so it's just it's got to get voted on but it it feels like it's going to happen. So, so in theory, uh, I'm Universal. I own a movie theater. I make the decision to show Star Wars. I have to give 55, 65% of that ticket revenue back to Disney. I'm just trying to see if that's in, in kind of in theory what you'd and mean. I don't know if that's the, that's not, I don't know if that's the ratio, but, but yeah, that's what would happen. Okay. That's, that's really, on whatever deal they made. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. That's really interesting. So, yeah. so Peter, I, I'm, I'm very curious, you know, you, you, clearly know so much about this industry. You've spent a, a, a very long time in it. How do you get started in this? Where does the the genesis of you wanting to be in this industry, to be a storyteller, where does this all begin? Well, I mean, I'm one of the, I, I kind of, I grew up in the business. So my father, uh, who's Dan- who was a Danish man who came over to, to this, uh, Canada uh, when he was a young man, like in his early 20s, to be an actor, um, uh, and then he got involved in the business. He couldn't get a job as an actor because his Danish accent was so heavy. But it was the golden age of TV. It was just starting. So they were using a lot of theater directors to, um, uh, you know, direct these things. And he became a director because he knew the characters so well. So, uh, so he kind of got started in the business that way and did a lot of, 
eclectic shows from, you know, up in Canada, a lot of variety shows to then that led to the Sonny and Cher show that led to, he then, uh, you know, helped create 2020, the news magazine show. He did rock shows like uh, Don Kirscher's Midnight Special, which is probably before your time, as before my time. But uh, there was the first music videos, basically. And then he directed the the Nixon Frost interviews. Oh, no kidding. The, the, the original ones. So, and the Carol Burnett show, I said that. So we kind of grew up as kids with like, you know, Carol Burnett, Harvey Corman, Tim Conway playing charades at our house and like things like that. Which is just normal. It wasn't. It didn't feel like abnormal. So, so we always loved to storytell. But I was also an athlete, so I I went to Boston University to play ice hockey, actually. And um, and when I got there, I realized, oh, I'm gonna be a I'll be a good college player, but I'm not gonna make NHL because these guys are just way better. And uh, and so my friends and I, we just started making like really bad short films. <laughs> you know, I'm glad. There was no internet back then because that'd be <laughs> embarrassing now. But so we made some films and learned the hard way how to put stuff together because you know you're shooting on film, like either Super 8 or or 16 millimeter things like that, and and you have to really make uh, you know choices because you only had so, only so amount of, so many amount of so much film that you could afford. And uh, so we started making films like that, and then I, I really enjoyed it. And then in my senior year. At Boston, a movie came into town called The Good Mother, which it was written by Sue Miller, who was one of my professors at Boston University. And so she told me about it. And they were just coming into town for two weeks. They're shooting Boston and the rest was going up to Toronto. And uh, Leonard Nimoy uh, was the director. And it starred Diane Keaton and Liam Neeson, who was really nobody at that time. He was just kind of a, a young up-and-coming actor. Diane Keaton was definitely the star. So I got a job as a PA, set PA, a production assistant on the film. And Leonard and I just hit it off. And he made me his assistant on the film for those two weeks I was there. I think mainly because I was a hockey player. And wherever Leonard went in Boston during that time, he got swarmed because, you know, he's Spock, mm. you know? And they were making the those Star Trek movies at that time with uh, William Shatner and all those guys. So I was almost like his bodyguard, like because <laughs> he would walk through Harvard Square. Like people would like you know, you know, notice Diane Keaton and talk to her. But like Leonard was a rock star. Like people swarmed him. Like so I literally had to push push people aside <laughs> as we were walking through as the poor guy was trying to direct the movie. You know. So we hit it off really well, and he wanted me to come up and finish the film up in Toronto with him. Uh, and that's why I realized, I learned from my mom that I could get Canadian citizenship. Because I was born in the States, but my parents were had been naturalized Canadian citizen before a certain year, and this was before 9-11. So I was able to get my Canadian passport in like two days. So I went up, uh, and, and I didn't go to graduation. I graduated, but I didn't go to my graduation. And I went up and worked with Leonard on the rest of that film with the blessings of my parents because they were like, okay, you can either go to my son's graduation or he can get a job. And they like, go for the job. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so that's it kind of started up there working for Leonard as his assistant on that film. Oh, that's incredible. And what's the time frame on this one? God, that would be like 89, 89, 90, 1989, 90, something like that. And then, uh, and then you know, you work on that film and then... There were a, bu a bunch of the guys, uh, some of the crew that worked on that film were going to do another movie called, um, oh God, what was it called? It was, uh, 
uh, We're No Angels, which was it's Robert De Niro, Sean Penn, and Demi Moore, and uh, who wasn't that big yet either, but obviously Sean and De Niro were. And Neil Jordan was directing that film, uh, who did Mona Lisa, and then uh, he's, he's like the poet lord of, of, uh, of uh, Scotland. He's an amazing director. So I got a job on that as a special effects uh, guy, a mechanical effects guy on set. And that was great. That was uh, a super fun job. And then I just kind of missed the state. That was in Vancouver. And then I came down to L.A. after that and just kind of, you know, got worked as a waiter for a little bit. I just I wanted to come back to L.A. That's where I grew up. And then uh, I got stuck and then sometimes worked as a location assistant or whatever it was, PA on some like things like HBO show first and 10, I think I did until uh, uh, I did this really terrible film. I think it was called night eyes. And it was like, it was like one of those uh, cinemax kind of late night movies. Like it was like Shannon Tweed and like (laughs) Andrew Stevens where I started off as a PA and I ended up as the first AD because I had garnered a little bit of experience on these other movies and nobody knew what they were doing. And the costume designer was a woman named Han Nguyen, who's since become a huge costume designer. And uh, she had done a film called Moon 44 in Germany with some young German guy named Roland Emmerich. And they were doing pickup shoots the next week and they needed a first AD. And so she was like, and her husband was a producer on it. And so she was like, I want to recommend you to that. And I'm like, listen, we're working like 17, 18 hour days. Like I, the last thing I want to do is that. So, uh, but she recommended me anyways. And a producer named Carson Lawrence, who, who's still uh, is a big producer, big line producer called me up and I passed on it. And, uh, cause we weren't, they were paying even less money than what I was already making. And then, uh, but then the director called me and it was this guy, Roland Emmerich. And uh, I never had a director call me <laughs> like that. So I was like, and at that point in time, I had slept, you know, right. so you're like, uh, <laughs> And he seemed super cool. And uh, so I met him and then we shot this like week of shooting and he and I got along and then he got offered off of that movie, a movie called Universe Soldier. And then he hired me as his assistant on that thing because he wanted somebody who knew the American production system because he didn't really know it as well yet. But I wasn't in the DGA or anything yet. Most of this stuff was all non-union. So uh, I, I started off as his assistant and just, you know, kind of went from there. What is uh, Universal Soldier, Jean-Claude Van Damme, Dolph Lundgren? It's one of the one of the first R-rated films I saw in the theater. Just to, just to give you my age range, I'm, I'm 41. So, like, my, my right. seminal movie-going experiences for me were, of course, in the 90s. 1990s. Talk about what was what it was like to work on Universal so- uh, Soldier as the assistant. I mean, that was a really big production. I mean, what what what, what were your days like? It was like? big. It was big because like it was like probably a 13 million dollar film uh, at that time, and uh, so there was obviously bigger movies, but it was, that was a pretty big budget uh, for me at that time, and it was for Roland too. The funny thing was like it was a. Uh, that movie was at Kuroko. Kuroko was Mario Kassar and Andy Vanya's company. And uh, there was another director on it before, uh, which had, but Jean-Claude and Dolph were still attached to it. So basically, they had sent Roland the script, and, and the script, and I read that, that previous draft. It was a disaster. Like, it was just like, there's a reason why it didn't get made, right? So what they told Roland is that if he wanted to rewrite it, all he had to do was keep the title and that Jean-Claude and Dolph are going to be in it. And it's, and it's, uh, and they have to be these kind of, uh, these soldiers, you know? And, uh, so 
Roland at that time on Moon 44, uh, there was an actor on that movie named Dean Devlin and Dean on Moon 44 had kind of, well, not kind of, he rewrote his own dialogue because Roland's dialogue was, you know, it's a second language for Roland English, right? He's German. So all Dean did was make it more American, you know? And, uh, so all the other actors on Moon 44 asked for Dean to polish their dialogue too, which he did. And Roland was more than happy for that to happen. And so that's how they started collaborating as like, uh, as writers. And so, uh, Roland brought Dean on and they basically page one rewrote Universal Soldier and c- kind of created this more Frankenstein story, um, with these guys from the Vietnam War and everything. So that was, pretty much a creation of Ron and Dean. They just started with the title and with those two actors, basically. And so everybody loved it. Uh, the actors loved it. Uh, uh, Mario and them loved it. So then we uh, went off and uh, and made it. And it was uh, shot it all in Arizona. So all the Vietnam stuff was actually, we were on a golf course in Arizona. So that was like the <laughs> first time I realized the power of illusion in a film, uh, which is what Roland's really good at. But yeah, it was a great experience. You're on location for the whole time in Arizona, going from one town to the other. So we were just like the traveling circus coming to each of these little <laughs> small towns and just taking it over, you know, every time we come in. But yeah, it was a great experience. And, uh, and Roland uh, is a very easy guy to work for. Especially back then, like he, uh, you know, you basically, I could run off of, uh, like, if there was nothing to do, I'd just run off of C camera and shoot stuff. Like, I'd shoot a tumbleweed rolling in the ground, like anything I thought he might need. And then he'd look at it in dailies and uh, said, who the hell shot that? <laughs> and then I, like, raised my weekly weight, raised my hand, and he's like, okay, now do nothing. And then he started giving me stuff to shoot, as opposed to me just making up stuff. And, uh, and that's kind of how we started. So, like, on the other movies, I would do the same thing, uh, but just more formal. So, like, so on Stargate and Independence Day and The Patriot, I'd direct a lot of the second unit as well. So, as well as producing. So, can, so. can we talk just a little bit about Stargate? I mean, that's a yeah. unbelievably phenomenal film. It is one that I revisit at least once a year. And your title, what was your title when you were working on that film? Well, I started, that, that movie, I started as his assistant. You know, like, because I was his assistant and you were a soldier. Because we were just doing guerrilla filmmaking. I mean, I was like 20 or 21 or something. Like, And uh, so I was just happy to be there. So I didn't really care about titles or anything like that. So uh, I was just like, what needs to get done? So I started off as his assistant on there. But I think I... I I think I'm a associate producer. I, th- I think I got my first first credit, first producing credit on that. So it was associate producer because that's what I would do, and what I ended up doing a lot for uh, for Roland is basically be his, the Swiss Army knife, you know, where you would uh, you'd certainly produce, hire the crew, and things like that, and then you would, if you needed to go off and shoot something, you would do that. Uh, you'd help develop the script uh and and then i'd be i'd just and then in post-production i would wherever ron was i was so uh every visual effects meeting every in the editorial room you just so it's a it's a great job being a director's assistant because uh if you want to get into you learn every aspect of the process from finding the script to writing the script to the the principal photography and how to schedule and get the thing the movie shot and and also seeing how and learning how to work with actors and and work with crew and the the audition process all that stuff you're there you know flying the wall and uh and then same with post-production all the way you know 
after the editing to uh, the scoring of the music to the sound design and the mixing stage and the visual effects all the way through release you're there so it's a great uh, it's a great film school sure. to, to be sure so that film had some really groundbreaking special effects in it and I have to assume that it was all storyboarded ahead of time was there ever a question of how some of those effects were going to be pulled off? Because this is still early 90s, CGI is still kind of in its infant stages. What, what, was, the, what was the dialogue like about the effects for that film? Well, the, I mean, Roland is like is probably the best visual effects supervisor that you could ever have, even though he's the director. Just he, his mind works like that. But especially back then, and it's so funny because we had a meeting today where, uh, on another project that he and I are going to do together where we feel... We might uh, go away from CG on it as much because he kind of dove into CG for a while. But back then, uh, we didn't have a lot of belief in CG and making it look real. Uh, So because it just wasn't there yet. Like there was a belief that it would get there, but everything looked very clean and it was harder to make things rough around the edges. And obviously we needed, uh, you know, this age town of Nagata and the pyramid and stuff. So. And Roland's experience had come from miniatures, like his movie Moon 44 was all a lot of miniatures in there. Uh, Universe Soldier, we even used uh, miniatures, like there's a sequence in Universe Soldier where the Universe Soldier truck goes uh, flying over the edge of the Grand Canyon, and that we did that as a miniature, and it works great. So it's all about how you have to know how to shoot it, so to give it scale. So that's with the pyramid in Stargate that's in the sand, and we shot that in Yuma, Arizona, which is also where they shot all the jab of the hut uh, sequence that uh, in the dunes and the uh, star star wars i guess what is it one uh job of the hut i can't remember yeah, what number R- that return one of the was. jedi return of the jedi yeah. yeah so that that whole opening scene when that was all shot in yuma arizona so we shot there as well all the desert stuff so we, we there was a big uh you know sh- sh- we we built the whole front part of the, of the pyramid not the actual pyramid but the uh, the gateway at the bottom of the pyramid. we built that in full size but there was no pyramid behind it the pyramid we shot as a miniature on stage in Santa Clarita actually and then we composite we did a lot of miniatures and compositing uh, even even the gliders a lot of those glider shots were miniatures on wires and flying across and then we painted out the wires which at the time was a big deal paying out the cables and wires because i think the first time they really did that to great effect was cliffhanger which was right before the stallone movie where you see him on a you know climbing a rock wall and he's hanging on with one hand but he's all cabled in but nobody knew you could paint out the wires then and uh, so it looked amazing so we did that with the gliders we had a there's a couple uh jeff oaken was our visual effects supervisor on that who's now the president of the visual effects society uh and was the inspiration for dr oaken and in the independence day but okay. uh, the, the character but so he had long gray hair and and so he 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 was pushing us that there's a couple shots that he felt we could do cg that would work and uh, so there's a couple in there but they're they're kind of just uh, they're quick they're quick shots and uh, put a little motion blur on them, which was a new thing too, which helped out because otherwise they did look pretty clean. And then obviously we did uh, you know the laser bolts were all opticals actually they weren't CG they were like they were we did those kind of like how Star Wars did their laser blasts in the beginning there was an optical effect as opposed to a CG effect and then and then we did we did practical explosions in the in the thing that we would then tie 
the optical effect too. So nowadays you would not do it like that. You would do you you wouldn't want to get tied into those explosions, so you'd do those explosions uh, CG. But but at the time it, it it worked well. But we tried to do everything as real as we can, you know. And that's still the philosophy. It's still a good philosophy to have is do it real first until you can't. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? And then and then you can do it another way. Uh, but it's better to do it real because, cause there's, there's no way that it, it won't, you know, it can't look fake if it's real. Cause, you know, we've all seen those movies where if one of those shots takes you out even for like four or five seconds, it still, it lessens the impact of the film and it ruins the illusion. Cause it's all a big magic trick. So if you get one shot where you're like, well, that doesn't look real, it has a residual effect on the, the way you watch the rest of the film, whether you, whether you admit it or not, it does, you know? So, so the key is, there's always going to be a couple stinkers in your effects. There always are, but you try to bury them in the middle because you, you, your first effects shots have to be terrific. And once you've got them, once you've got people believing, oh, the effects are going to be great for the rest of the film, then like these other shots, you can slide by because people have now already made up their minds that the effects are going to be good because those first 10 or 20 shots looked amazing. So then you're good to go. Yeah, but I would say 80% of what we did on Stargate was real meaning like it was either real or or a miniature okay because a miniature is still a real shot because uh, it's still three-dimensional and it's still real and then we'd composite we'd composite a lot of elements so you'd shoot people against green screen and all those kind of things and, and do it like that like the little town nagata we built like one street of that real but then the big wide shot was a combination of of a uh, matte painting and miniature you know, so so yeah. Peter, I can't on Super Bowl Sunday in 1996. I can't even tell you who played that game, but I can yeah. tell you what I remember the most about that day, and that was the 32nd Super Bowl teaser for Independence Day in yeah. 1996. Is the year I turned 18. I moved out on my own. I I purposely found an apartment which, which was in you know walking distance of a movie theater because you know like you mentioned, I was going to the movies two three times a week. I don't ever recall an anticipation bigger for me than Independence Day. And when the first theatrical trailers came out, and you know you mentioned the White House for me, it was seeing the Empire State Building. Like everything about that trailer just screamed, "I have to see this!" And it was the very first first midnight release film that I ever went to. Yeah. I, I have yeah. to know, making this film, being a part of this production, did you have any idea how big it was going to be? Uh, no, not at all. Because, I mean, Stargate became a big hit, but no one thought that was going to be a big hit either. You know, that was, that was, the movie had never really tested well, Stargate. And because we made, we made, we made one big mistake on Stargate is that we tested it really early. This is going to tie back around to your Independence Day thing, but we tested the movie with like 5% of the visual effects in, right? So so there's a scene where Kurt Russell comes over to Sand Dune, there's this huge David Arnold music, and then there's no pyramid, you know? Mm-hmm. So we actually had a thing saying pyramid here, you know, in the thing, and you tell the audience like, hey, there's no effects here, so just imagine. But people just judge what they see, and... Uh, so the movie bombed in the testing thing and the studio then took it, took the movie over for a brief amount of time and recut it. And then they tested it again in like Scottsdale, Arizona, uh, with more of the effects in, but they had cut a much more of an action centric film, which we, we don't, it wasn't really an action film, Stargate, right? So, and so the movie did not perform well. So they were going to bury it in October, which is where it got released. And, uh, so, uh, Roland got the movie back. 
uh, we had like two weeks to cut it back together. And remember, we're cutting on film. So yeah. there's like Roland's in one room with, uh, on the movieola with uh, one of the editors. Dean's in a room with the other editor. I'm with the assistant editor on the cam, another room. And you're like running around and finding strips, you know, in the bin and like, and bringing them over. That's where I learned how to cut on film is because <laughs> you have, sometimes have to make the cut yourself because you, you have to, we, we didn't have much time because again, you have to deliver the prints and get all the negative cut and then, Still, everything's got to ship. You got to put the film in the prints and trucks. So it needs two weeks before release. You got to be done. You got to put it in the trucks. And, uh, so in that movie, and then it came out and had a big opening and, and consistently stayed as a big opening. Uh, the weekend was, it, it just kept performing, you know? And, uh, and a lot of that was, you have to give a lot of credit, uh, to Dean Devlin because he, uh, he literally forced us to go to, uh, the, conventions like we went to denver and and san diego and we went to all these sci-fi conventions and comic book uh, conventions uh and publicized the movie ourselves and uh because that's just where and nobody was down there like nobody was down in san diego no movies or anything like that and i know dean dean always says that we were the first ones who did it and i think he might be right but i i'm not sure we were certainly one of the first to bring the films down there and and we showed them the stargate trailer there and it was that audience that opened the film there's no question in my mind that that that's what happened and uh so when we were doing Independence Day, we, we were definitely given a bigger budget, but we were still, we were like a $50 million budget, which is a ton of money. But, uh, compared to other movies like Twister and Eraser, those were all over a hundred million dollar budgets, right? So, so we, uh, we were still doing it all old school, all miniatures, like all those buildings. That, that was all real explosions, but we had the best in the business. The best miniature pyrotechnic guy in the business was Joe Viscosal, who's, his first job was blowing up the Death Star. That was his first miniature pyrotechnic job. So he came from a pretty, uh, from a pretty, uh, uh, good recommendations. So he, uh, so we did all those and, uh, you know, we were just too busy to think about it because that's why I, I was a producer from the get go on that one. And, and, uh, besides, directing a lot of uh, second i did like seven weeks of second unit directing on that but also we had the first unit the second unit then you had two motion control units and you had two miniature units and uh, so i was the person in charge of making sure everybody's also shooting all the right elements and, and then you have to have your visual effects people you're making sure they're getting all the elements because we just had layers upon layers upon layers of composites there you know so like for example the uh the the effect of all the people running in the big wall of fire behind them there was probably like 15 layers there because you have uh i would shoot like people running away from the green screen uh with like real like full-size cars with hydraulics under them that would like start to start to flip the cars and then uh then uh the, the miniature uh, you know would shoot a plate with uh you know uh, uh lighting effects of of the street you know they would shoot a minute there's a little miniature town of that they would shoot that let's say it's the first interstate building that's blowing up behind them that's the building in los angeles that would be you know joe fiscozzo and his miniature pyrotechnical would shoot that uh and that all these are separate elements and then uh, uh volker engel who was one of our visual effects supervisor he would be shooting like cars uh that were like maybe uh the size the length of of an arm you know like that big and then, and then he would also shoot cars like matchbox size cars that we had literally got in the toy store. And you'd shoot them at like 360 frames per second and we would pull a string on them in front of a green screen so that they would fly towards camera. And you just keep adding all those layers. 
and then you do a black box version of the of the miniature street, right? Uh, and you turn it vertical so that it's it's a uh, and you put the camera on top, so the camera's looking down this black box version mm-hmm. of the street, but the street is kind of tilted a little bit because what we're going to do is down below on the ground we do a fireball, right? Mm-hmm. And so that fireball comes up the street, but because of the street's tilted a little bit, the fireball looks like it's uh, crawling along the street, right? And then you shoot it there, and then you just make the vertical shot horizontal later, and then you take all those elements and you composite them together and you get what you see, you know? So it was a lot of coordination. So it was tough to know, like, what it was going to be until we tested it. When we tested it, then we knew. Then we knew we had a hit because it was like we were testing in, like, the 90s you know where and if you you know if you want to get a studio behind a film and, and get the publicity mark and you want to test in the mid 80s right. or low 80s you know but we were way above that so then so we knew. with that being said i mean i know you know with a lot of test audiences you know things that score below the 90s you know uh, sometimes they get reworked i mean from the the test screening to the finished product m- any changes made to the film there was only one change. Uh, the only one change we had was Randy Quaid's character. In the original script, you know, because in that movie, he flies that uh, crop duster plane, yeah. you know, the biplane. So in the original script, like, he comes flying into this battle with his crop duster plane, you know, and he does, and he does that suicide mission into the heart of the, into the belly of the, of this alien spaceship with his biplane, you know. And, uh, so people just weren't buying that, okay. you know, like they were like, he would get shot out of the sky, like in a moment's notice, you know? And, uh, so what we had to do is go back and, and we, we shot him in the crowd. Like he comes back a little bit earlier, uh, with, and with Jimmy Duvall's character who played his son. And so he's at the speech with the president and you see that he, we put in a little backstory that he does, you know, he used to fly jet fighters, you know? Yeah. And, and then we put him in a, in a, in a fighter jet and have him come in. And then we had to redo, cause that shot was finished. Like we had finished that visual effect shot of the biplane going up there. So we had to redo that shot of making a, an F-16. So that was, that's really the only really big, the real, only really big change. And then the, on the teaser idea with the White House, that was, it was one of the few times where the marketing guy at the studio was like, really had a great idea because, there was a guy named Tom Sherrick who was basically, he was in charge of marketing at Fox at the time and he was a great man. And, uh, it was his idea to show the White House blowing up. And at first, uh, there was a hesitation on our side because, you know, that's like a big twist. You know, it's like a big yeah. thing, but he kept telling us like, that's the end of your first act. <laughs> you got another two thirds of the movie going. Like you destroy, like you, everybody, we lose at the end of the first act and then, the next two acts is about how we how we get our you know uh, how we how we come back. So he convinced us to do it, and he was just so right because and also first Super Bowl commercial of a movie trailer, as far as we know, and that was also his idea to do that. And it was really expensive; it was like a million bucks to buy that article and uh, or buy that time slot, and uh, and it it was huge for us. But then. Again, he was super, super smart is after that, he like took everything down, like nothing more about it until like a month and a half before. Cause he just didn't want to over, you, you know, you, you give them a little something, then you want to take it away and make them want to know more about it, you yeah. know? 
So the marketing of that movie was just extremely well done, you know? And then, then we did the, the that full length trailer. I think about a month and a half out from the movie release. Well, it was it was effective, Peter, because I saw the movie three yeah. times in, inside of a week. It was you know, yeah. I mean, it was I mean, it was the biggest movie. It was all everyone was talking about. So, so I have to ask a question. I know we got a sequel twenty years later, but yeah. there had to have been. Right out of the gate, when the numbers are coming back. I mean, you're, you've got the biggest movie of the year. You've got one of the biggest movies of all time. Is the studio saying, whoa, whoa, when's part two coming out? Like, was there ever any discussion right out of the gate? Uh, yeah, there was, but it, it was, uh, I mean, creatively for Roland, there was never going to be a sequel on Independence. He just never, that was never crossing his mind, you know, to make a sequel out. He was making War of the Worlds, basically his version of War yeah. of the Worlds. Yeah. And, and that's it. And it had a, had a beginning, middle, and end, and that's it. Stargate, we had way more ideas. That was supposed to be a, a trilogy of films, but that got turned into a TV series kind of against uh, the will of, of, of Roland, but uh, but he wasn't in charge of an independent say. He just, uh, he didn't, he had other movies he wanted to tell at that time, you know? Uh, and that wasn't, uh, he didn't, He we didn't have a story. For that, sure. You know? Sure. So, a lot of you know over the years a lot of different stories have bopped around and uh and then the you know they uh the timing just was right for when roland did resurgence i wasn't i wasn't part of resurgence i was asked to be part of it but at the time it just uh i don't know i i felt i felt the movie shouldn't get made either unless will smith was going to be in it okay. and uh so i just yeah for me it wasn't uh i didn't and i'm not saying this in hindsight because obviously the movie didn't do well but i just uh uh, and Roland's one of my, uh, he's my mentor. He's like a big brother to me and like, I love him dearly, but I just never, I never thought that one, uh, should be made unless it, unless it was with Will, because I think Will, the combo of Roland and Will was like, was like impossible to deny. They, they really worked well together. Will brought a lot to that part and a lot to that movie. Sure. And, uh, it made him a star, but it, it was something Roland, Roland believed in Will, uh, even beforehand, like, uh, both he and Dean wanted to cast Will, but the studio at the time didn't think Will was a big enough star because he had done Fresh Prince. But we had told him, like, uh, uh, to be honest, Bad Boys came out uh, before, you know, Bad Boys were about to come out. So I would say Bad Boys kind of made him a, like a, a player in the movie business. And then Independence Day made him a movie star, right? Because we had Will for, I'm not going to quote prices, but we had Will for a certain amount of money that was that he had agreed to to play the part. But Fox... In fact, Fox wanted Andy Garcia for that part because mm. Andy Garcia at the time was coming off Untouchables and he was a big movie star at the time and uh, and a great actor. But uh, we wanted someone who was going to be more lighthearted about the whole yeah. thing and like where Andrew, you know, it's a different t- it's a different take on the character. So the Fox wanted they wanted to wait to see how Bad Boys did and Bad Boys had a big weekend. And uh, I'll tell you, Will's price went up a lot after <laughs> <laughs> that one weekend. <laughs> so, uh, but we were happy to have him, and he's and and one of the great guys to work with. He's sure, fantastic. So, with the monster success of Independence Day, the the question now has to become to Roland and to everyone involved. It's it's not here's our next project we want you to look. I mean, it's it's what's next. Now it's Roland. You guys can do whatever you want. The decision to do Godzilla is that was that something that was talked about well Independence Day was being produced or was this just something that happened after the fact? It happened after the fact. It was uh, after after Independence Day. They, they uh, Roland had a lot of suitors, you know, so yeah. a lot of people yeah. chasing him and and uh, and 
So Sony, and we were looking for an overall deal for Centropolis, uh, Roland's company, and Sony, you know, just gave a ridiculous deal, like, you know, where we got set up in the old uh, Mandalay offices, which are these incredible offices, and a big discretionary fund, you know, uh, so that we can make our own movies and and uh, and use their money <laughs> to, to get projects and stuff. But uh, part of that deal was that they wanted us to make Godzilla. And uh, so that was part of the deal. And um, so, uh, and so they, you know, they had, there was an idea, there was a script by uh, the the team, Elliot and and Rossio had had a script, but uh, Roland Dean didn't like that. So they kind of did like what they did, to be honest, on Universe Soldier, where they had the original idea and then. And Chay, we got the Bond had been attached to it as a director before, but uh, Rowan and uh, Patrick Tatopoulos, who was our creature designer and production designer, they both had this idea of making Godzilla like lean and like fast and yeah. like upgrade him, you know, and stuff like that, which I think still to this day is the, is a good idea. I think the 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 problem was we shouldn't have changed his face, you know, because. That if you were able to keep Godzilla's face and give him like, you know, at one point we were going to give him the power of all lizards, you know, so he could shed his skin and he can be a chameleon and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it could have been pretty cool, but, but it was Toho approved. Like we had to go to Japan and, and bring this, our little maquette, a little sculpture of the new Godzilla to Toho, uh, who owns the rights to Godzilla. And they had to approve it. And it was literally an unveiling. You lift up the thing and there's a thing and they loved it, you know? So, so, you know, they, I think Roland went for it. He gave it a shot and it it ended up, I mean, listen, that movie still made money. So, uh, but it wasn't, uh, his, uh, it wasn't, uh, it was definitely a disappointment uh, compared to the track that, uh, Roland had been going for going on since Universal was a Universal Soldier was a surprise hit and started a franchise. Uh, Stargate uh, was a surprise hit, and then Independence it was huge. So Godzilla was like took a little step down, but still made money for the studio, and they were still happy to have us there. You know, still so. still had one hell of a teaser trailer. I'll tell you that right yeah, now. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> that. I'm telling you, that's like a special skill Roland has, because he came up with. There was two I two trailers that weren't even in the movies originally. Like we shot those trailers especially for it, where there's the one where the teacher's taking the the kids to the Natural History Museum and to look at the T Rex, at the skeleton of the T Rex, and the teacher's like saying this is the biggest uh, predator known to mankind, and then Godzilla's foot steps in and yeah. steps on the thing and walks by, and then you see the tra- the tail going by, and that's when the size does matter thing happened. And then, uh, and then the old man on the on the dock on the Hudson River, uh, going fishing, that was wasn't originally in the script, but it, it had such a, a huge hit, uh, like it would have gone viral if you could have gone viral. Um, but uh, so they they put it in the movie, so it got we got put we put it in the movie that scene, absolutely. Uh, but, but it wasn't originally supposed to be there, but yeah. No, I, I'm listen. I'm I'll be a champion for that film. I think it's incredibly watchable, and I've always had a great time watching it. I really enjoy it. So you know, just putting it out there that I've I watched. I revisit that one quite a bit as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm proud of that movie. I'm proud of all the movies I've I've done with 
with Roland. They were all uh, experiences, and and they were shot the right way. We we shot like for all those movies all the way through. The Patriot was pretty much the same crew that we had from Universe Soldier onwards. So um, a lot of repetition of crews. So we all kind of grew up together uh, on all those movies, you know. And then after. The Patriot, everyone was in such demand, everyone starts getting pulled in different directions, you know. Speaking of the Patriot, so here yeah. is, you know, you do, there's Stargate, there's Independence Day, there's Godzilla. These are PG-13 rated films. They're big summer blockbuster, tentpole films, if you will. Uh, Patriot, long, epic, R-rated film. What's uh, what's the thought process on that one? Because I think it's an exceptional film. And I'm just wondering, you go from Godzilla to the Patriot. What's that transition like? For me, like at that point in time, besides producing everything, I was running the development of the company of Centropolis. I was given a, a script by a guy named Walter Hamada, who's now running Warner Brothers and in charge of the whole DC universe now. But he was a creative exec over at Sony. And he sent me, we were looking for the next project. I, Ron and Dean were, were going down to Mexico to write a, a movie. Uh, that's usually where they would go right is down in Puerto Vallarta. And, uh, uh, they, there was a movie called Ground Zero that, uh, that, uh, they were writing, which ended up not happening. Uh, but so I got sent a writing sample by this, uh, you know, by Walter, Walter Hamada. And it was this movie. It was The Patriot, you know, and, and I read it and I was like, who's doing it? He's like, well, Mark Gordon's producing it. Uh, but, you know, right now it's kind of, stalled you know and mark gordon uh for those who don't know was like a producer on saving private ryan at that point in time and and is you know probably one of our most prolific producers uh, around nowadays and uh so so i was like i went to him and i was like hey gosh, i think i might want to show this to Roland because there's a scene this, i think it was page 70 or 71 in that script it's the scene where what soon became mel gibson's character He's leaving with uh, Heath Ledger, God rest his soul, back to war, and his youngest daughter, who wouldn't talk to him at all, suddenly, you know, runs after him, calling his name, Daddy, Daddy, don't leave, don't leave. And it, like, rips your heart out even on the page. And uh, I just, I always felt, for me, I kind of watched Spielberg's career and how he did a lot of these popcorn movies and for a long time wasn't regarded as... Uh, he was regarded as a popcorn movie director, right? Yeah. And it wasn't until he did like Empire of the Sun, uh, which uh, was recognized as a good movie, but he didn't get a lot of credit because it's hard to think of the E.T. guy or or Close Encounters guy as like a as a big dramatic director, you know, especially back then. Now people are easier to make the switch over and stuff. But uh, so he ended up then having to do The Color Purple, which again, everybody loved, but he didn't get nominated as a director. And it wasn't really until Schindler's List that it took those three movies, those three dramatic movies, and he did them fairly close together. Uh, I mean, he threw in a, a Jurassic Park in there, I think. But, uh, you know, where you have to win people over to that, you're doing that. So in my mind, I felt like that could be like this, the Patriot could be a movie like that for Roland. Cause I, I believe that he, he, uh, uh, given the right material, he can really be uh, that kind of level of director. And uh, so, and as Robert wrote out, wrote the script, I mean, so anyways, it was uh, one of those things where I sent it to him. 
And, and, uh, and at that time, uh, the ground zero thing had, wasn't working out. So Dean took off and went to Hawaii. So Dean was in Hawaii and Roland was in Mexico still. So I sent the script to them either side, you know, and I just told them straight out like this, this movie, we have to do this. Like we just have to do this else I'm out, you know? (laughs) And like, and, uh, so, and so then I got a call. I always remember I'm in the office and it's been like a week or something like that. And then somebody got a call from Mexico from Roland's office. They patched me into my office. And I told them, like, if you can get to page 70 and not cry, then, like, forget about it. Don't, you don't need to finish the rest, you know? So then Roland called in and he was like, he's like, I got to page 70 and I cried, you know? <laughs> so, and he's like, and I finished, so I loved it. And then at that same time, Dean's office was, Dean's calling in from Hawaii. So we patched everybody in and it was at that moment. Uh, they said they wanted to do it, you know? Uh, but then we had to have the conversation with the studio because the studio was like, they wanted Roland to do Godzilla 2. Uh, and they wanted him to do another big popcorn movie. Sure. So uh, we had to convince them uh, to allow us to make the film. And then the only way we could is, is we had to get like either Tom Hanks, Tom Cruise, uh, Harrison Ford, or Mel Gibson, you know? Like that was it. Like we don't get one of those guys, you can't make the movie. And uh, and uh, so we got Mel Gibson. So which turned out great. And then it kind of went from there. So just in the the early early stages of pre production on that film, you know, given the the clout of what you have all accomplished, are there any arguments over over budgets, or is it just here? This is this is what we need. No problem. You can have it. Oh no no that that never happens. That never happens. That doesn't matter. <laughs> okay. No, that absolutely <laughs> never happens. There's, there's always budgets, uh, decisions, and and uh, and especially in in pre-production. Because once you start shooting, it's like the horse is left to barn, right? So it's much harder for uh, the studio executives to have any kind of control over what happens. So so uh, uh, because all, so many decisions are making on the day, and on the day, then it's up to you as the producer to protect the investor's money, whether it's a studio or a private investor, or whatever. Uh, and you got to find that, that perfect balance. It's why it's called show business. It's not called show show. Right. It's also <laughs> not called business business, right? So you got to find that balance of commerce and art and, um, and, and, and do it. So else they won't let you do it again. So no, there was, you know, it, it's all relative in scale, but uh, we had a budget that we had to uh, adhere to. And, um, and, uh, and we did for the most part, we went a little bit over budget on that one. And, and that's probably the first one where we did because, uh, Stargate, we stayed in budget, uh, uh certainly Independence Day, we stayed in budget. Uh, the Patriots probably the first one we went a little bit over budget on. Uh, but that's also because we were shooting in the real elements and there was like a lot of, I mean, there was, there was, uh, there was, uh, a couple days where there was a hurricane coming in and we booked, um, uh, we chartered a flight to go to fly out to Nashville if we were shooting in the Carolinas. And um, and we were thought we were going to have to escape, and we thought all our sets were going to get blown away. Uh, uh, and then it, at the last second, the hurricane turned. So still some of our sets got damaged, but they were still there. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, right. uh, so just heavy rain, and we didn't have to get on that flight. But, but we still had to buy that plane, you know? So anyways, it was like, a, you know, some crazy stuff happening, and we shot a lot of – we had a lot of extras. We had like probably uh, fifteen hundred extras at the time, um, and we had to train all the all the different soldiers in the different uh, 
you know, ways like how the British marched and how the colonial mar- army marched at the beginning and how they marched at the end. How did, we had musket training, horseback riding training, all that kind of stuff. It was a blast. I will remember this one moment, uh, uh, we were doing the big battle scene and, and, uh, and I was up at the top of the hill with, uh, with Roland and with Mel. And we were just looking down at all the extras. Everyone's being put in position. And Mel's like, no one's going to ever let us make a movie like this again. <laughs> like, and it was because they knew, like, like already at that time, like, it's not like the old days of El Cid where you could march the entire Spanish army, like 10,000 soldiers up and down the beach for like a dollar fifty a day, you know, right. <laughs> and do it for real. Like we had like probably like, you know, a thousand soldiers on each side. And then, then we were cloning, you know, the rest, you know, and, uh, so, and nowadays you'd have five guys maybe there, <laughs> you know what I mean? And then clone the rest, uh, or, or the CG extras, the rest. So. That's true. You don't get to do those things at big scale anymore as much. I mean, I'm sure some ways you can, but, but, uh, for, for that was the last for us because now it, it went, it started to go CG heavy after that. Sure. You know? Sure. And I'm genuinely curious if, if Mel tried to offer any input after his experiences directing Braveheart as far as big battle sequences, or was he just on set? I'm the actor. No, he, I mean, listen, he, I will tell you because I was directing officially second unit because, I did a lot of unofficial second units on the previous movies, but, uh, uh, so this one, like they wanted to get me in the DGA and reward me a little bit. And cause I'd done a good job, I guess. And so I got the second unit directing credit. So I will just, my personal experience with Mel was like, he taught me a lot about directing. Uh, so there's a scene in the movie. I, I had to come up with all these, uh, ambush scenes where, uh, where the colonials were like, where the, you know, Benjamin Martin's guys were, were, you know, doing a guerrilla warfare based against the British, right? Like we were the Viet Cong in, es- in essence against the British. So I took uh, some of the diaries from Francis Marion and Thomas Sumter and did and recreated some of the ambushes that they actually did in real life. And there's one that happens in a cotton field uh, where they, they, they rise up out of the cotton and there's cotton flying all around in the air, which it never would in real life, but it just looked really pretty backlit. So we just did that. And, uh, but when I shot that scene, uh, neither Mel or Heath were available to me in the second unit. So I was doing it with all the other guys. And, and then we, we had the editor on site in the Carolinas and then he cut it in and Rowan had seen that. So now I was, this is now a month later because we shot for almost 108 days on that movie. So, uh, uh, I was in this, I was in a grass field and I was shooting a like, about 500 guys on horseback as they were charging, you know, uh, towards battle of explosions and things like that. I get a, a, a call on the radio saying that uh, Mel and Heath are coming over to my location. I'm about a couple miles away from where Roland's at. And I have to put them in the cotton field ambush, right? Uh, and then they got to come back in like two hours. They got to be back over there. So, and that's it. So they're coming. Like, I can't stop them, you know? And uh, But I'm, I'm not at a cotton field, you know? I'm in a grass field and cotton field is like, you know, till dirt and all that stuff. And, uh, I asked our location guy, like, well, we got to go to a cotton field. And he's like, well, there is no cotton field. I'm like, no, we shot at them. He's like, no, like a month ago, but everything's been harvested. That's why we shot it back then. Like there is no cotton field. So, but our, our greens guy, this guy, Ron on his own, like I never told him to do it, had saved like 20 sticks of cotton. Right. But they're, they just look like sticks, you know, like no, like you don't know they're cotton sticks, but so we're like, all right, let's stick those in the ground. And then, uh, uh, we had all these reenactors 
these guys who would, uh, you know, they came out for a couple months just to be the soldiers in the, in the movie, and they would camp out. You know, and some of these guys were doctors and lawyers that they didn't care. They loved reenacting so much. So one of the guys would say, hey, listen, if you buy my sleeping bag, you can rip it up and you can take all that stuff in there. Maybe that sells as cotton, you know. And then our prop guy figured out how to stick that onto the sticks. And then uh, our DP, Uli Steiger, was like, okay, if we, if we start on the ground and boom up. And so we, we frame out the grass because there would be no grass. We started to bother saying, you boom up. And then you put Mel and long lens it and put Mel and Heath at the back end of these 20 sticks and they just come up and fire their rifles. That could work. And because four or five second shot we're talking about. Right. And then our mechanical effects guy happened to still have these snow sticks. They're, ba- they're totally illegal now, but we didn't know they were illegal. But you basically light them on fire and it's like snow flies in the air, but they're not healthy or anything <laughs> like that. But you're outside in the open air, so everyone's fine, but it's still, you're not allowed to have them anymore. But, uh, so he had a couple of those left. So I was like, all right, I guess that's what we're going to do. So, and then Mel and Heath, they drive up in the van and Mel comes up to me. He told me later that he knew for sure that this wasn't going to work because he was like, I'm pretty sure the cotton had been harvested, but he was just going to go anyway. <laughs> and like, and then turn back around. And then, and especially when he pulled up and he saw our 20, our pathetic 20 sticks of cotton, he was like, that's not going to work. And then, but then he came up and he was like, he's like, so how's this going to work, Peter? And I like, I told him. And he's like, oh, that could work. But like, why do you seem so depressed about it? <laughs> and it was like, I was like, well, because like none of this was my idea, <laughs> you know? And he's, and because I would have totally taken credit as my idea if, if, if it wasn't for the fact everybody was standing around me because Mel and Heath were on set. So, uh, cause he asked me, how'd you come up with this? And I was like, well, actually Ron told me this and Doug, the prop guy. So I'm kind of just along for the ride. <laughs> and, uh, and he was like, you know what, man, that, but you knew they were good ideas, right? And I'm like, well, yeah, but like, he's like, yeah, that's directing, man. Directing is being the purveyor of good taste because, uh-huh. uh, like he told me when he had done that movie, a man with no face or the man of a thousand feet. I can't remember what the name of that one as the first movie he directed, he had made himself the smartest guy in the room. And, uh, and he felt the movie suffered because of it, you know? And when he did Braveheart, he made himself the dumbest guy in the room and he won an Oscar, you know? And he's like, your job is to take the best idea. You're going to get credit for it anyway. So take the best idea and make sure it fits into the vision that you have and just be that purveyor of good taste and then run with it, you know? And, and then every once in a while, if you're really lucky, you'll have the best idea, you know? And, and what that does also besides getting the best idea it galvanizes the rest of the cast and crew because whether the idea comes from an actor or from the grip or from the PA or from the effects guy, now their brains are on fire, right? Because everyone's like, it is a collaborative process and now they know it's collaborative and their ideas will be heard. But they may not be taken, like I may not take that idea, but I'll, I'll listen to it, you know? And, uh, and then everyone becomes proactive instead of reactive and I think it can help the movie. And it, and it gave me, he gave me permission to not know everything, you know, cause when you first start directing, uh, your insecurity is, is, uh, it's just human nature. You're not going to admit when you don't know anything cause you're, you're, you're the guy in charge. You're supposed to know everything, but nobody knows everything, <laughs> you know? Right. So, so you use the brains around you, uh, to support the vision. That's brilliant. I mean, that's brilliant. I mean, that's, that's so good. You mentioned that you were, you were official second unit on this film and yeah. this was this is what got you into the dga 
Yeah, that one got me into the DJ. Yeah. So you're in the DJA, but you've got by this point you're you you've been you've been working hand in hand on every aspect of making these movies. You're ready to make your directorial debut, I have to assume, right? At what point do you start saying, "Okay, I'm ready to direct my first feature film?" I mean, yeah, it's right around there. Like I think I did I think I did one more movie. I did I did I produced Eight-Legged Freaks uh, with them, uh, which Roland didn't direct. Well, Roland did kind of direct it, but uh, so I did that, and then it was yeah, it was after that. But it, it listen, it's at that company at that point in time. Like I, I had to go on my own to get to do that. Like there, Roland is, and also at that point in time, uh, Roland and Dean's relationship started to fray a little bit. So it was one of those things where you have to you have to go away from home in order to come back. You know what I mean? Like so. That's when, after A-Legged Freaks, I felt it was time to to head out on my own. And uh, But obviously, I still have a very uh, tight relation with them. And then I did do some directing for Dean and TV Land. I did some, uh, he did a show called Leverage. So I did a bunch of those. Uh, but he also, he gave me uh, he gave me the opportunity to do the Librarian uh, TV show. So Dean was the producer on that. And that was like my, that was like my first movie. Because that was an $8 million TV movie, sure. you know? Uh, with Noah Wyler and everything. So we had a pretty decent budget for that, even though that seemed small at the time. Eight million seemed like small, but everything changed pretty soon thereafter, you know, because, I mean, 9-11 really changed a lot of things. And then uh, uh, and then also, you know, the the whole movie business changed right around then too. So, so yeah, so a lot of, you know, a lot of, a lot of things happen and then you just kind of ride with the times. You well, know, so before, before I get into asking a little bit about your experiences doing the librarian, when you say nine 11 changed a lot and the whole movie business changed a lot, was nine 11 responsible in some way or was the industry just so radically changing? I'm very curious if you could just uh, expand a little bit on, on what you said there. I mean, I don't even know the answer to that, but it's, it's, it's both. You know what I mean? Cause it, the 9-11 was had such a pr- profound effect on across the board, like emotionally, business wise, everything across the board, everything changed, but the business was changing already, but it was, it was more like the business. And I'm not even sure why, why 9-11 affected that a lot, but they, they got l- l- way more risk averse, you know? And the budgets started to get smaller and tighter, you know, and they just took way less chances. And and I think that's why also then when all these other content uh, buyers came in, it was been such a godsend because there was a very limited place to to pitch your projects to. And then they were only going with tried and true things. They weren't taking as much risk, you know. So and I think 9-11 did have a lot to do with that. And then. And then, uh, and then also just the dynamic of the digital technology and all of that, and nobody really knew how to handle that yet, you know? And so they, and whenever there's new technology, like you see it even with how long it took for electric cars to come into play, because yeah. they didn't know how to make money off them yet, you know? So they banned them for a while. Like, if you, there's a great documentary, like, Who Killed the Electric Car? And that's, I think happened to film business too, where they didn't know how to make money out of that. Like, can just people from their house make a movie now? Is our studio is going to die? You know, so they're. I think they were just trying to find out what the new model is going to be, and so they just kept this kept it stationary for a while. So there wasn't a lot of growth in that, and I think nine eleven scared the shit out of everybody as well. And um, 
and everything could change in a, in a moment. So I think it's just a, it's a combination of a lot of events, you know, uh, that, uh, I think changed the business. There was, there was a period of time there in those early, you know, two thousands where it was kind of dead around. It was, the business was pretty dead, you know, and pretty static. I feel what, what is, um, 2001, 2002 digital cameras. You've got your ear to the ground on, on what's happening in the industry. I mean, I know Lucas shot the second Star Wars prequel 100% digital. I mean, what what's the thought process right then and there? Are people really saying, no, this isn't really going to catch on? Or was it more of a, it was inevitable, and now we're starting to see the first whispers of it. What were your thoughts in that time period? I mean, it was, it was a toss-up. Like, it wasn't... I don't think it was inevitable, you know, uh, and I know our camp didn't think it was inevitable. I know for sure Roland did not think it. Dean was, he's a little bit more, uh, tech advanced, uh, than, than Roland was, at least at the time. Now it's different, but now they're pretty much, everybody's kind of on board with what's going on, but you just weren't sure. Like we were, we were, like I said, we were slow to change over to CG, you know, yeah. until it was proven that it could work. And, uh, um, whereas James Cameron is the guy who's like, I'll take all the risks for everybody. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and, uh, you know, because of him, because of Titanic, like on Godzilla, we use CG water, which at that time, no one thought we could do it, but then Titanic did it, you know? And, uh, and then suddenly, you know, James Cameron will do a movie and he'll, he'll invent the morph technology in T2. And then three weeks later, you can buy that at Best Buy. <laughs> you know, it's like, that's how quick it changes. Like not, not a joke. And, uh, so, but for the digital cameras, you know, there was that, you know, that kind of love. I still have a great love for film, but would I shoot film now? Definitely not. Unless it's like really the aesthetic. Cause now you can make digital look like film, you know? Yeah. So, um, but at the time it was still cumbersome. Like I, we shot, uh, the librarian digital cause it, it made sense for TV, right? Because you're never gonna go to film and tv you're, you're just gonna go to tape so you're already in the ones and zero the data world anyway even though film is also data but we just didn't think of it like that and uh so i i shot on the library we shot with a sony 900 and uh so but it was a pain in the ass man i will tell you because at the time you uh you have to set up the big you know uh uh, uh, they, they, they weren't calling them dits yet. They, there wasn't even a title for those guys, but, but it was, you know, you have to set up the video assist tent, you know, and it had to be a full on tent. So, and then to move that thing. So you have to plan your whole day about where that thing is. Cause you don't want to move that thing. Cause it's going to take an hour to reset, calibrate the cameras again, do all that stuff. So it was like a nightmare. Uh, like I can get, move the camera and get it set up, but I wouldn't be able to shoot because the dit tent wasn't ready yet. So, and we were shooting in the jungles. So we had to really, the jungles like south of Veracruz, like three hours south of Veracruz we were in. So I had to really plan the day on like where the fuck, excuse my friends, where the hell <laughs> this tent is going to be, you know? And, uh, and then, uh, so that we could, and then I had to kind of block accordingly, you know? Uh, unless it just was stupid and then we just, we'd schedule it. Okay. We're going to have to move that tent. So I had that 40 minute delay, uh, into my shooting schedule. So you obviously don't want to do that as, uh, as you want to do it as little as possible. But you know, the images was interesting because, you know, what was great at the time is what you see is what you get on the monitor, you know? And, uh, 
And that wasn't the case when you're shooting film, right? So, like, you know, it was like a pretty poor imitation of what you're seeing in the video assist when you're shooting film. And then you always have to see dailies, you know, so to make sure, like, you know, so you'd get the dailies the next day, uh, and you'd look, and sometimes you'd have to reshoot stuff. So you couldn't wrap a set, or there was maybe a hair in the gate or a negative scratch, whatever in the film and you might have to reshoot something that you shot a day a day earlier you know because it because you'd have to take the film send if you're out on location send it back to la to technical or they process and send it back so then at the end of your shoot day you don't just wrap and go to the hotel and plan your next day you go home uh you go back to the hotel somebody set up a room to project the dailies yeah and you'd spend another two hours watching dailies before you can even start planning the next day so uh, digital was great, all, if only for that. It's been great for a lot of things, but the fact you don't have to watch dailies anymore, like, like we have to go there and sit in a room for two hours. Like now, you can just, you know, you can just get on, on your computer on the hard drive and just check stuff. And you can even now you can like I'll roughly edit stuff together, you know, super rough, just to make sure I have all the pieces, you know, and then uh, and then I'll you know, I'll move on. But I, I don't really cut it hard together because I, I like having an editor do that i like having fresh eyes on it i can do it if i had to but i would rather not you know so and uh, but i do sometimes cut stuff just to see if i have all the pieces if i'm if i'm in doubt hard drive space back then i mean were you limited as far as how long you could you, you could shoot i mean i know today it's you know it's pretty much indefinite but i mean were you on a five minute loop ten minute loop i mean do you recall no, we could, I mean, we could, uh, we could shoot the length of that tape. I mean, I, I mean, I don't remember it's like on film, it's like four minutes or right. 10 minutes, right? You have 400 foot mags or a thousand foot mags. Um, but on video, I don't, I don't remember. And that could have been the case, but I don't think so. I mean, I've always felt like I can, you know, until the tape runs out, I can, I can keep going. Now, as far as storage, you know, uh, hard drive, they might have had more hard drives, you know, than they do now because they'd have to have more and they, cause they couldn't, there was no terabyte drives, I don't think back then. So, but, uh, you know, switch, if they, if the camera had to switch out a hard drive, it didn't affect me as a director really too much, you gotcha. know, like, cause it was a quick, you, you take it out and plug, plug it back in. Like for me, it was only they'd have to, you know, reload like every 40 minutes or something, you know? Okay. Tell me about the first day on the set of the, the, the film you're directing, The Librarian. You're in charge. This is your production. This is your show. What's the first day like for you? Uh, yeah, it is. I'll tell you, the thing that you learn directing, I learned a little bit of that when I was second year directing, but it's really more on The Librarian for the first time where as a producer uh, or a crew member or an actor, like you find yourself asking questions of, of you ask questions, right? Of the director to get answers so you can deliver for the director what they want. As a director, you have to answer questions. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? And sometimes people come up to you and you don't have an answer to the question. Like, cause you didn't think about that yet. So, so you have to, you have to make a, a quick decision. Like, okay. Is this a person that knows me well enough? I can say, I don't know. And they'll still have confidence in me. And like, what do you think? How, how do you like, if the person says you should, she be wearing a blue dress or a red dress? Like it's a costume designer. I can probably say, yeah, like, you know, what do you think? Uh, how do you feel about this? You know, like I'm leaning towards blue, but I'm not quite sure. But, uh, and then they give you their expert opinions and that you kind of go like that. 
But if, if there's someone else that you really need that you may not is still te- they might be testing you. You know what I mean? Because you're like a first time director or an experienced director, and you just have to make that determination, and then you just come up with an answer. You know right. what I mean? <laughs> just just lie and say the answer. I never usually say this, but it, I needed to, I, I needed to do it on this one occasion. I did it and it worked out. Because then what you can do, you can change your mind later, right? As long as they don't like do whatever you said the answer was, like yet you can still change your mind because you're the director, you know. So, so like if it was the costume girl and she's like, what, what color you want? If I felt I needed to get confident, like red is perfect, you know, and then she walks away. Then I could actually really think about it. And then <laughs> like a half hour later, you know what? I've been thinking about it. I let's go with blue. Blue is what I really want, you know, and that because I've had now time to think about it. And that's also cool, you know. So what I always tell uh, first time directors or inexperienced directors, for the most part, you want to lean on your crew because they all know you're a first-time director, right? So it's not like any shock. And uh, so I would just like lean on them. You know, all you need to know is what you want, right? That's all you need to know is what you want. You don't have to know how to get it all the time, you know, because that's what they're for. And you can be honest about that. But if you don't know what you want, that's a problem. But if you know what you want and you don't know how to get it, you can be honest about that, you know. But if they ask you a question and you don't, you don't know what you want, then I would buy some time. You know? right. but, but, <laughs> but the key is the key is know what you want. That's the only job that you really have to have. Like, and especially as an experiencing, you're not going to know all of it. Like you'll have certain strengths. Like maybe you're more tech savvy and you're more comfortable with the camera. So you, that you can talk that language, but you don't know how to talk to actors, you know, then you can just t- tell them what you want. Like, so for example, on the librarian, it wasn't my first day, but it was my second day. The first day we did a bunch of action stuff, which I was super comfortable with. Right. And, and Noah Wiley's great. Uh, he was, a, he, he was a producer on it as well. So I had worked a lot with him, um, uh, leading up to the months leading up. So I was, had a very comfortable relationship with him. So we had a scene though, the next, the second day with Olympia Dukakis plays his mom and, uh, she was an offer, right? So we didn't audition her. She just offered her the part. And, uh, so I was, I was really intimidated by, by her because at that point in time, uh, most of my experience has been second unit action, visual effects, things like that. And uh, I hadn't really built up my skill set with talking to actors, which I now think is more my probably my bigger strength now. But so she was playing uh, uh, Noah Wiley's mother and he was a 30 year old genius still living at home. Right. <laughs> so they were doing the scene and like I would always come in, I'd give notes to Noah and the, and the other actress in the part. And Olympia was like, well, how, what do you feel? And I'm like, great, great, you know? And I'd walk away, but I didn't like what she was doing. She was, she was being like too, like Jewish mother, you know what I mean? But I didn't know how to say that to her in like actor language, you know? And also like, who am I to tell her that, you know? So <laughs> Olympia DeCarge just won an Oscar, right? So, and I'm just some schmo director. So every take I'd go in, I'd work with Noah a little bit and great, Olympia, great. And uh, I like take four or five because everything was going good. I was just hoping by accident Olympia would Olympia would just be less Jewish, right? Like, and uh, and I mean Jewish, like not the religion, you know what I mean? Like just like a yenta, like over overbearing, like kind of mother and uh, overprotective, 
mother. She was just being too much of that and a little over the top. And uh, so finally, I went back in there and she just grabbed me by the arm and she pulls me into another room and she's like, you don't like what I'm doing. I'm like, what are you talking about? No, you're great. <laughs> you're great. You're amazing. And she's like, don't bullshit a bullshitter. <laughs> like, I know you don't like what I'm doing. So just tell me. And so she's a very powerful woman. And so I was like, listen, I don't even know how to tell you this. Like, I just was honest. Like, I don't know how to tell you it. I don't know what the right words are. I'm like a little intimidated. And she's like, you just, just tell me what you want and I'll translate whatever you tell me. I'll translate it, you know? And I'm like, you're being too Jewish. She's like, I knew it, you know? And she's like, I got it. I got it. I got it. Okay. Let's do this again. And uh, from now on though, just tell me what you want. And if you just be honest with me, you know, and I'm like, okay. And, uh, so sure. the next take, she nailed it. And, uh, and I was like, okay, I just want to do one more. It's like, you didn't like it? And I'm like, no, I loved it. I just want one more. It's my Lloyd's of London take. I always like to get two before I move. And I promise you that's the truth. And she could tell I was being honest. And, right. and uh, so then we then we went in and did it. And um, so I was trying to get, get the performance like through Noah. Like I was trying to have Noah do stuff to make her be less like uh, over the top. But it just wasn't working. And you just... And that it's just a big lesson to learn is with actors I've learned like you just got to be honest with them. That's it. They just want to be honest if they because they'll they'll feel it. They'll feel it. You know. Are you under any type of pressure to come in? Uh, not so much under budget, but uh, under the deadline. You know, this is a t- made for TV film. I imagine that you know you know everything must be just a little bit more compacted. Um, so what, what oh, yeah. are you, are you feeling that, you know, while you're shooting the film? hundred percent. I mean, every movie you do, you feel that you got to make your days, you know, that's crucial. So you have to really plan it out, uh, your days. So it's always, I find the way I schedule, I schedule the big stuff first, you know, uh, whether I, I mean on, on both levels, both on the, on the overall schedule, like my first my first week of shooting, I try to do as, as much big stuff as I can, uh, because that first week is your most prepared week, you know? So, cause after that first week, it's like, you're just winging it after that. Cause you don't have much time to prepare. So you just have your one day off or two days off on the weekend to recalibrate everything. So you just don't have as much time where you, hopefully if you have enough prep, you know, you should be able to kind of put everything in order. And then that first week is crucial and also everyone's at their f- most fresh, you know, where the crew is still super energetic and all that. And you don't get into the dog days yet. So, so for me, like I learned that also from rolling, like on Stargate, the big, huge mining scene where you see all those people up on the hill of the mountain. That was day one. You oh, know? Okay. Um, and, uh, so, uh, we do, uh, yeah, that was like a thing. Do the big stuff first. What's also good about that is if you have a studio film or your investors, whoever's watching, because, you know, people are still going to watch dailies. They just watch them at their own time. You want something impressive, you know, so that they can, like, if it, especially if it's a studio, if they see something impressive those first couple of days, they'll turn their eyes to another project. You know what I mean? Right. And uh, and they're not, they're like, okay, that project's in good, in good he- heading, you know? So they'll move to something else, which is always good. And, uh and, and and if you have private equity investors and independent film, it's good. They they also feel good about it. They can show it, you know, to other people. Like, hey, look at this thing. What is this cool thing? And they so then when you, if you need any little extra money along the way, it's easier to get because you've 
you've shot they see some of the cool stuff already that you've done right. so um like uh kurt russell told us a story once on uh, tombstone when he was doing that uh kevin jar who was the writer on tombstone was originally the director and uh the ad on that movie i don't remember can't remember who it was i'd convinced kevin you should start slow you know because it's just first time directing and you just kind of ease your way into it so those first couple days it was just like horses riding in the town like hoofs in the dirts and like just a bunch of super easy stuff to do and he was fired day three and they brought in george cosmatis you know to shoot the rest of the film and uh so because they were like what are you doing you know and uh so it's like a lesson learned there you want to like you definitely want to uh shoot really impressive stuff so so that you get that stuff and then even during the day like you know there's that i'm gonna butcher this expression but there's an expression where in the and you're shooting an epic in the morning you're shooting a, a tv film in the afternoon and then you're shooting like a soap opera at the end of the night you know as far as how fast you shoot you know so because everyone comes in the morning, like they spend a little time and da da da, and then like now you're racing the light, and you're like, "I'll do. It. I just need one take for this, and then let's do this over here." Because you got to finish your day, so so you gotta. So I always, I'll I'll do the most important scene that I need first in the morning if I can, pending like location, actor availabilities, and all that kind of stuff. But in concept, uh, that's what you try to do, and then uh, and then and then you and so that so that if you don't get something you can live with it, you know, or if you don't, if there's a scene at the end of the day that you can't shoot as well as what you shot before, you can live with it or you kind of go in knowing that. Now you want to shoot all your scenes as well as you can, obviously, but there's, it's just, uh, just the nature of the business. There's certain scenes that you're just going to run out of time on and you gotta, you gotta figure out another way to shoot it, you know, and still get the story point across. So, so that's, it's always important. I think it's important to, to schedule like that so that you're not, you don't screw yourself over. What was it like first time you watched the finished product? I imagine you were part of the editing process, the whole nine, but like, where did the film premiere? They, they must have done a special premiere for this film. On the librarian? Yeah. Um, on the librarian, we, we premiered at Paramount, at the Paramount lot and that, that big theater that they have there. And uh, probably like a thousand people in that theater, you know, it was huge. And, uh, or it seemed that big. I don't know. Whatever, however many people that place holds, there's that many people. Uh, and they had a huge party over it. Uh, cause it, again, it tested really, really well. Uh, there's one sequence in there I always wish we would cut out, but, uh, Dean wouldn't let me cut it out. It's a, there's a scene where they're crossing the bridge. And I just felt like that was beyond our budget. And, uh, and I thought the effects weren't going to look good. And I still think they don't look good. Um, when he's walking in front of the thing, like story wise, it's great. I mean, I, I came up with the idea for that scene. But then as we were scouting, I was like, I'd rather like go more detail with like the scene where they jump off into the waterfall and they, they go off three waterfalls. <laughs> I had a bigger sequence there. Like I'd rather spend it on that. Cause I can do that for real. Like I'm going to have to fake this stuff. And I just don't know if, if the visual effects, the level of visual effects we can do it on an $8 million budget would, will be good enough for that. And, uh, and it, it take, it took a lot of time to shoot because we had to shoot the plates we had to build that bridge and do a lot of that in front of green screen. So it, it, it took like a good week to shoot that sequence where I could have, I felt I could have put it to better use somewhere else. But again, a lot of people love that sequence. So I, I could be wrong, but for me, I felt I could have shot the other sequence in more detail and make it more suspenseful. Uh, and I thought I was just trying to, I thought we were trying to bite off more than we could chew, but I am super proud of that film and it tested uh, really well. 
and it it's it, it turned into a franchise and a TV series. So yeah, uh, and so you were you, well. you had been to big film premieres for all the movies you worked on. This one had to have been just a little bit different. It had to have been for you because this was a, this was yours. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely different. It was it was it was mine. Like I had done a. a a big pass on the script on it. So I had a lot of ownership on it and uh, yeah, no, it was a, it was a big thing. And I also, I, I really love that product. I love those kind of movies. I like I, I love the idea of this like comical Indiana Jones type guy. And Noah was great to work with the entire cast was great. And I, listen, I learned a lot in that movie because I also made a lot of mistakes on that film, but I had, I had a safety net in uh that dean devlin was producing and he obviously had my back and the actors all had my back so like if they did if i said something stupid they were like okay that's stupid say it again <laughs> you know what i mean i'm like okay what i meant to say was uh so they they gave me a lot of empowerment there and a lot of that's because like that thank god that second day of olympia and uh and then like my experience with mel before that all those things and there's plenty of other of those like kind of stories of people giving you these little nuggets of wisdom that you'd never forget and and carry with you so you know you had i i was given permission to you know be an idiot to be honest you know and uh and then and then and keep learning from your mistakes but but they i i still was the engine driving driving the train you know like you that's the main thing as a director know what you want and then and keep it going because at the end of the day, like you're going to be in that room all by yourself with an editor, you know, and it's up to you to make sure you get the footage that you need, yeah. you know, and, and uh, because you'll get both the credit and the blame for it, you know, so. All right. So, Peter, that has been just an incredible journey that you've taken us on so far. But the journey and the story doesn't end there. You know, we've got quite a bit more to talk about. And I know you're going to come back on next week and we're going to go over everything you did post the librarian, which I'm really excited to talk about. So, so Peter, again, thank you for coming on the show. And I'm really looking forward to picking this conversation up. Yeah, it's been great talking to you too. And uh, yeah, I look forward to our next time. Perfect. And my name is Dana Buckler and thank you so much for listening.